All right, grab your Bible. Let's turn to Romans chapter 6. It's been a while since we've been able to delve back into this epistle by Paul, but we want to do so. Romans chapter 6. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible there in front of you in the back of the pew. We'd love for you to see God's Word as we are studying it together. And uh, Brother Gary Blasius, the venerable Gary Blasius, make his way down the middle aisle. If you need an outline, and uh, he'd be glad for you to get his attention, get an outline, follow along. We did start chapter 6 a few weeks ago, and uh, but we'll pick up and uh, honestly, just about two messages left in Romans chapter 6. I tried to split it up accordingly. And, uh, but Romans chapter 6, and uh, <coughs> if you need an outline, see Brother Gary there in the middle aisle and uh, get his attention. He'll be glad to get you an outline so you can join us. Romans chapter 6, let's kind of uh, refresh our minds and uh, our hearts. Bible encourages you and I to study to show ourselves approved unto God. So we want to study it tonight, and uh, I know it's difficult after a long day, tired, and maybe a long week, kind of getting back into things after the holidays, uh, but this is a tremendous passage, as we have already seen, and a great challenge from Paul in this epistle. So let's read chapter uh, 6, verses 1 through 10, again, kind of setting the table for what we've already studied thus far. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Chapter 5, and Establish the grace of God uh, extended to each one of us in our salvation. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, one of Paul's famous statements. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Remember la- our last time that we were here, this outline, Roman numeral number one, the key word was no. And we see that verses three, verse six, and verse nine, the reference to this knowledge. And so chapter or verses one through ten of chapter six is establishing our identification with Christ in baptism. Yea, taking it a step farther, saying you died with him, your old nature, the sin was nailed to the cross, and you rose to new life with Christ. That's literally what he's saying here. Notice it continues, verse number four. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What a great statement. I love using that when we baptize someone. We are raised to walk in newness of life. And praise the Lord, you and I can walk in newness of life. And uh, we have hope even for this beginning of 2019. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, there's that word again, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now, we didn't say much about it last time, but that's really setting the table for what's going to follow in verses 11 and in those verses, verse 12 and so forth. And this idea that we should not serve sin. Verse 7, for he that is dead is freed literally from the dominion or servitude to sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing Keyword again, that Christ being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. And what we saw from this passage, the connection between sin and death uh, that was ushered upon all us, and yet Christ died to that. Verse 10, and here's where we finished, uh, finished up. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. So we've dealt here, we've come to understand these verses and what that knowledge is that you and I are supposed to have. Everything starts with knowledge. It doesn't start with action. It doesn't start with progress. It starts with knowledge. And so Paul is establishing in this passage, first of all, know this. 
know these things. Understand these truths that he's laid out for us, that we died with Christ. Our old nature, and I love that picture as we uh, reference in verse 6, that our old nature is crucified with him. In other words, the old nature of Stephen Henry was nailed to the cross of Calvary. And that's a great truth. And as we've come to put our faith and trust in Christ, no longer do I have to serve my old nature. No longer do I have to answer to its beckoning call. And we'll expound upon that even this evening because that's really where Paul goes next. But as we understand that, that he paid uh, the penalty for our sins and, and delivered us from its dominion, therefore you and I are able to live a victorious life, to have a victory. Um, I'll tell you, many of you, may, maybe not many of you, but some of us have, have, have experience, whether be, maybe as an athlete, as a member of a team, or maybe as a coach, we have been a part of a losing team. And uh, I coached a team before, I think we went like 1-17 in basketball. That wasn't too much fun. You pretty much knew every time you walked out, you were going to get defeated. Now, the good news is we turned that team around, took them to the state championship game. But regardless, that time when we, we had that difficult season, it, it was hard to get your attitude and spirit up and ready to go at it, knowing that you're probably going to get slacked. And uh, that mean, that's a, a word just meaning pretty bad, beat, okay? Beat up pretty bad on that scoreboard. Hey, can I tell you, the good news is you and I can wake up tomorrow and we can have a victorious life. That's, a, that's encouragement. I, that ought to be something that gets you and I excited. The reality is that sin isn't and doesn't have to reign tomorrow, that you and I get to live up, uh, wake up and live a victorious life. And I'd encourage every one of us as believers. Now, here's the problem, though. Sometimes that doesn't encourage us. I say this from the pulpit, and you're like, oh, yeah, all right. That's, I, I don't see it. Why? Because we have lived repeatedly a defeated life. We have not tasted of that victory. We have not understood what Paul says here in knowledge. We have not come to practice it. We have not come to see it play out in our lives on a daily basis where, wait a second, sin doesn't have to rule. I don't have to allow it to reign. That doesn't have to be what guides and directs and dictates my living. That, that doesn't have to be the case. And so sometimes we get in a, a rut. We get in a routine of constantly allowing sin to rule and reign. And boy, when we do that, these words of encouragement aren't much encouragement anymore. Because we haven't experienced it. We don't live it out on a daily basis. And so that's exactly what Paul is getting to. Verse 10 is the culminating verse of the truth. He said, Christ died unto sin. And, and how do we put it on our outline last week, or a few weeks ago, excuse me. He died unto sin once, and it's finished. And now you and I, as he lives, we can live unto God once and for all. It's a great truth. And again, it kind of is developed here in what I consider Paul's next logical step. Okay, so know these things. And once you have a good knowledge of it, let's see it come to play in our lives is literally what Paul says. So we're going to entitle the next uh, point with the second word of verse 11. He says this, likewise reckon. Likewise reckon. So let's look at verse 11 and we'll understand this next section here. In fact, we're just going to take time to look at two verses today. Tonight, we won't cover a lot. And uh, notice of verse number 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. So he's making a correlation comparison to verse number 10. Christ is dead unto sin. Now you and I also reckon ourselves dead unto sin. And I like that statement, indeed unto sin. And here he says it, but alive but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, reckon is an interesting word. 
And uh, it's both in the Greek and the English here. The Greek word is used some 41 times in the New Testament. And Paul uses it himself 19 times in just this epistle of Romans. Uh, and, and so, you know, understanding both of these words and so forth. I, whenever I hear the word in English, reckon, all I can think of is my southern relatives down in Tennessee. And all they say is, well, I reckon it's so, and that's all I can think of when I read the word reckon, that southern use of the terminology and so forth, and, well, I reckon it is, and I have an aunt, boy, that uh, you, you really have to focus to understand her, and <laughs> the, the southern speak and everything else, and, and but I, that's what I think of when I read the word reckon, because it is that term, and, and how they use it is not necessarily how, uh, how the Greek is indicated here. You see it here on your outline, uh, logizomai, or that Greek word, it literally means this, to calculate, to calculate, um, to estimate, okay, to compute, to compute. So uh, the idea is a counting term, it really is, to calculate, to, uh, to estimate, to, to account. Uh, it has connection to impute, which we've seen before, and in fact it's used chapter 4 towards that end, and yet it, it carries this idea. If we're going to put it into... To, uh, common vernacular or common usage today, we might put it this way in our own language. It literally means to make up your mind. To make up your mind. So to consider all the facts and then to come to a conclusion in which your mind is made up. You have estimated, you have computed that here is what I should do. Here is the next step in the progression. And for this case, for Paul, he's saying this is where the Christian life goes. So having this knowledge now, we're going to reckon something. We're going to come and calculate, and we're going to come to say, okay, this is the natural outflow of that knowledge. It marks a monumental shift for Paul in this epistle, if only for a moment. What we have seen Paul before, and you've, we've pointed it out, you, you've seen it already, already Paul has pretty much focused entirely on uh, establishing doctrinal principle um, for living and for the Christian life. Here's the doctrine. Here's why we are what we are. And here's how we are so blessed in, in with grace and salvation. But now he moves to temporarily a practical application. Paul's being very real in this next few verses. In fact, these next two verses. He's saying, okay, we have the knowledge. Now, what do we do with knowledge? Because knowledge is of no good unless you do something with it. So he's saying, here's the knowledge, we have it, so let's act upon it. And what he gives us is one of the first imperatives for action that Paul gives in the book of Romans. He's saying this, and it's there on your outline, because you and I have the knowledge of what happened at Calvary, our part in it, the fact that our sins and our sin nature were nailed to the cross, we have knowledge of that, you and I can now make up our mind to be dead unto sin because in Christ, it's now possible. It's now possible. See, it was not possible before because you and I were under the rule and reign of sin. We were, as we've already said, because of the first Adam, we were condemned. We were under sin. But now, if we have perfect and understanding knowledge of Calvary, then it makes it possible. It literally makes it possible for you and I tomorrow to wake up and have a victorious day. To have victory over sin. In all of its manifestations and all of its ways. But, now, here's the catch. You and I have to reckon it so. We have to reckon it so. 
it's our responsibility, the reckoning. And we cannot fail as Christians to do so. If, we're due, if we do, we're doomed to live defeated lives in the face of sin and in our sin nature. So if I don't get up tomorrow and I say, well, wait a minute, Stephen Henry is a believer. I've trusted in Jesus Christ. I put my faith and trust in him. And when that occurred, then my account of sinfulness was put on Christ. His righteousness was placed on me. And I was freed. That's what Paul said earlier. I was freed from sin. I am now dead to sin. Therefore, hey body, sin doesn't have to reign today. I don't have to give in to temptation. I don't have to allow it to tell me what to do. And I don't have to answer it. And I can live free from sin today. Now, understood, we're, none of us are perfect. But I sure am grateful that the possibility is there. That you and I don't have to live in a gutter for the rest of our lives. That you and I don't have to be controlled by our lust and our desires constantly. Our addictions constantly. Uh, our base, innate, sinful lust and desires for things, we don't have to be controlled by that. The pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, those things no longer have to control our day tomorrow. You and I both know that those who don't know Christ, Paul says that later on in some of his epistles, they walk in those things. That's how they live. That's what dictates their living, their choices. Their, their daily choices are dictated by these things. But for you and I, it does not have to be so because we have the knowledge of what Christ has done for us, and then daily we must reckon it so. Reckon it so. I like how one commentator gave an illustration. He illustrated the truth this way. Suppose a businessman, someone who owned a business, an entrepreneur, if we may call him that, were to say to his accountant, uh, something to this effect. What is the total sum needed to make this month's payroll? Well, after some calculation, his accountant, his bookkeeper responds something to this effect. $20,000, sir. But there's a balance of only 5000 in the bank right now. The businessman thinks for a while and he simply responds, okay, make out the checks, but do not give them to the employees until I give you further notice to do so. Then the businessman, he, he pays a call to his banker. He, he visits his local branch, and he, in doing so, he, he, he meets with his banker. He arranges for a loan, and they offer him up to $30,000 to be transferred to his account. And so it is. Then he calls his accountant. And in doing so, calling the accountant, he says something to this, this effect. You, you can now pass out the checks to the employees. The bank has more than covered the payroll. Well, soon after that, the first employee, he comes to the office, and there the accountant, the bookkeeper meets him, and he's there to, to collect his paycheck. It's that time uh, uh, every couple of weeks where it's time to do that, and as the employee asks for his check, the accountant simply says, I'm sorry. He continues, he says, I cannot let you have this check right now. The total payroll is $20,000, and there's only $5,000 in the bank. Here, you can look at the ledger and see for yourself. Let me ask you this. What has the accountant failed to do? Well, he's failed to literally the word reckon. He's failed to take into account, to, to calculate, to compute the fact that adequate provision has been made far more than what is needed for the payroll. 
He hasn't taken into account. He hasn't considered and calculated. Now, wait a minute. The, uh, he, uh, the boss just called and he said, the money's in the thing. I don't have it on my ledger because I haven't written it in yet, but, but it's there and it will cover the payroll. He has failed to do that. In, in failing to reckon, what has that uh, accountant done? Well, he has created a mess, hasn't he? Because now every employee is going to be griping and complaining. They're going to be worried about their job. Do we have jobs? I mean, he has created a mess not only for himself, but honestly, he's brought dishonor to his boss, to the businessman. And frankly, he's put himself in a false position. Because though he stood there and told the employee, we don't have the money, reality is he has the money. <laughs> it's been adequately provided for. So the illustration is, is pretty dead on or right on, we might say, when it comes to you and I. You see, at Calvary... Christ made adequate provision for every sinner. He made adequate provision for every sinner. See, it does not happen that if someone comes to put their faith and trust in in Jesus Christ, like Brother Jerry uh, referenced the family member there, the nephew or whoever, uh, whichever family member it was, he referenced they they came and trusted Christ. What if when that person came and said, started to pray to God and somewhere the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, hey, you know what, I'm sorry, we've used up all the capital of God. All that Christ achieved on the cross, and we've used it up, sorry, that's it, we're just cutting that off. There are some religions that kind of believe that. but we've used it all up. No, 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 no. Can I tell you, if someone comes to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, Christ has made more than adequate provision for their sins to be covered. So what we are saying here, not only for someone to get saved, but reality is this. God, Jesus Christ, made adequate provision. He has dealt completely and totally with every aspect of sin for every believer to escape the present rule of sin. But now it's for you and I to reckon it to be so. You and I have to calculate. You and I have to make up our mind. No, wait a minute. Christ has done this for me. Today, I'm not going to let sin rule and reign. Christ has delivered me. He's done what is needed and necessary for me to have the ability to say no to sin. And it's a great truth. Knowledge, we mentioned this a moment ago, you see it, let her see. Knowledge is not enough. This reckoning is what is needed. Paul's teaching that here, it's not enough. We must reckon them to be true, okay? Everything that we know, all these truths to be true in, here's the key, personal experience. I've got to make it personal in my own life day to day. And how do I make it personal? Well, I act upon the wonderful knowledge just presented to us. In time, Paul gives us instructions about how to do that, but it starts with making up our mind, reckoning a decision that in turn flows to the heart. You see, this truly is Christian living. This is the life that you and I are called to live in Christ. Uh, Paul says it later. In fact, he says similar verse. He uses a similar Greek word. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. That idea of presenting there, in fact, in that verse is the same Greek word. It's the idea that, that you and I are going to consider, we're, we're, we're going to say, wait a minute, I can now present my body to Jesus Christ as a living sacrifice. I, I can live free from sin because of what Christ has done here. 
knowledge, as we talked about, Roman number one, knowledge is a mental attitude, a, a mental assent, a, a, a mental understanding. This reckoning of Roman number two, it starts in the mind, no doubt, but once the mind is made up, it goes to the heart, and the heart is the catalyst for action. So as I make up my mind, the fact is this, and and I've made my decision, my choice to, to take the knowledge and say, okay, God has done this for me, and if he's done this for me, then I can indeed be dead unto sin. I can live in such a way in which I'm dead to sin. Because of that, the Bible teaches time and time again that where, we understand this, where your heart is, there your treasure is. So if my heart is in something, that treasure no doubt indicates that my time, my effort, my investment in my action. In fact, God often says, okay, if you're going to do this, do it unto the Lord. If you're going to do something even to the Lord, do it with all your heart. Do it with all your heart. Oh, he certainly mentions strength and might and mind and so forth. But he intentionally mentions do it with all your heart. Because what do we know? Okay? Sometimes we encourage ourselves or even our children to get your heart into something. Your children never do something without their heart into it. Like clean a room or another chore or wash the dishes, take out the trash, whatever the case may be. They never do something without their heart in it. Can I tell you, as a coach, boy, you can tell it when your player's heart is not into it. You can tell it when their mind's not into it too, but you can also tell when their heart's not into it. When they're not giving forth the effort, when they're not acting upon it. I'll tell you, my friend, listen to me. God says this has to come from the heart. The heart is the catalyst for action. It starts in the mind. I have the knowledge. And based upon the knowledge, I reckon, I calculate, I compute, I make up my mind that, oh, this ought to move me to action. And then my heart is set on it, and my heart propels me to action. It moves me to do exactly what Paul says here. That on a daily basis, I determine that I am dead unto sin. Paul uses the last part of this verse, verse 11, to speak of the antithesis of death, doesn't he? That in Christ we are now alive. Notice it, he says that in verse 11, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So being alive, we ought to live unto God. To to put it succinctly, to put it in a little statement here, verse 11 encourages you and I to be dead unto sin, alive unto God. Now I'll tell you, that would make a great personal life verse. That I could be dead unto sin and alive unto God. A good mission statement for any believer. That I would be dead unto sin and alive unto God. In fact, wouldn't it be neat, wouldn't it be pretty awesome if you could qualify in God's eyes at the end of your life for this to go on your headstone? In this mortal life, he was dead to sin, but alive unto God. And I'll tell you, my friend, that would be pretty awesome to be able to have that put on your headstone. That you lived in such a way that you were dead unto sin, but alive unto God. Literally, Paul is challenging you and I to have that goal. He's saying, live your life on a daily basis where you are dead to sin and alive unto Christ. Hey, I I can't do that. There's no way. I, I have a sinful flesh in me. Oh, you can do it once you know what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary for you. What he accomplished. Paul is building a tremendous 
case for you and I to do exactly what he calls us to do in verses 12 and following. Look at verse 12. Let's read it together. Notice it. Let not sin, therefore. That's an important word, isn't it? So he's basing it upon what he just established. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. So that word, therefore, tells us this is one of the practical applications of uh, a practical application that flows from making up our mind and allowing that decision to flow into action from our heart. So here he says, okay, so make up your mind, have the knowledge, reckon, make up that mind and allow it to flow to your heart to action. What is the action that he speaks of here? He describes sin in our old sin nature as a monarch, an old monarch, an old ruler. It's been deposed. It's been removed from the throne. It no longer has any right to the throne. It has no authority. It's an old master that must be turned away. But here is another imperative, another command from Paul. First, he said, okay, reckon yourselves indeed dead unto sin. First imperative, first command. Then he comes and says, okay, then let us therefore, here verse 11, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. A second imperative. Don't let it rain. It's an old monarch. It doesn't have a right to the throne anymore. It's not supposed to be the ruler, the master of your life. So don't let it rain. Now there are some, uh, what we would call, or what I have called, some observational truths from this statement. Notice it. Let's just draw out a truth. As we consider verse, uh, verse 12, I know it looks rather small, but we can deduce some truths from it number one i want you to see this we can come to this understanding if the door is open to it that being sin sin can rule or reign in one's life now let's wrestle with that mentally and spiritually for a moment if the door is open to sin then sin can rule or reign in one's life it can take over as a ruler It can be the thing on the throne of your life. As a believer, as a child of God, sin can come in and rule and reign. Oh yes, you've been delivered. Yes, it was nailed to the cross with Christ. But you and I have to make practical application of the truth, of the knowledge. You and I have to say, nope, sin, you're not going to reign. The temptation to to, to say that unkind thing, no, 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 you're not going to rule today temptation to look at something you ought not to on your phone or on the internet no you're not going to rule today temptation to do whatever that is displeasing to god or the temptation to leave undone the things you ought to do to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin see that sin can rule in someone's life too isn't it amazing if you and i live leave off doing the things we ought to do guess what rules in our life it isn't jesus christ it's sin because for you and i it's sin for us not to do the things that god has commanded us to do he says here don't let that rain don't let that rule and reign in your life so it is literally paul saying it is possible how would we describe such a person that is a backslidden christian A Christian who has gone away from being saved, putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, establishing Him as they would desire to do so, the process of making Him Lord of their life, and now they've walked away from it. Instead of Jesus Christ being Lord, they've allowed sin to come in. They have answered the doorbell when sin came. 
And they have ushered sin right into their throne, into a place of rulership and reign, and it has no right to be there. No right to be there. We remember this when <laughs> President Obama was president. Everybody had this big thing about his birth certificate and everything else. Look, he has no right. He can't be president. And, and they try to prove it and everything else. Listen to me. Hey, can I tell you? Right now, tonight, you can go to sin and you can tell sin it has no right to be there. It has no right to rule your life. It has no, no authority to reign in your life. But if you and I open the door... If you and I give in to temptation, if you and I indulge in sin, it can rule and reign. Would we all agree tonight, and we probably all have experienced it, I dare say, when you and I have failed, we have given in to sin in our life, isn't it a whole lot harder to get rid of it than to say no to it? Once it gets entrenched, and once we've said yes to it a couple times, once we've allowed that attitude to reproduce and continually be in my heart, in my mind, and that attitude, that, that discontentment, that complaining, that criticism, that, that unkindness, that slander, you name it, whatever it is, I, I, boy, the more I give into it, the more it has, boy, a strength, it's got its roots in deep, and it's harder to get it out. It could be a cur cursing. It could be losing your anger. It could be something you watch on television. and It could be something you watch on the internet. You name it. Once that sin gets rooted in and you've given it a little leeway and you've given it a little room and we have allowed it on the throne of our lives, it's a whole lot harder to get it out because we've opened the door. Paul is saying it's certainly, certainly sin will gladly rule your life. It's the reason many New Testament passages encourage you and I, command us to not let sin reign in your life. It's why throughout the Scriptures, you and I are called to pursue holiness. See, there's a big kickback today in pursuing holiness. Living a holy life, being perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. See, uh, there's a whole lot of people that don't want to embrace that. Can I tell you, one of the great fallouts of pursuing holiness... You don't have to deal with sin reigning in your life. If you will pursue holiness and you will say, okay, I want my, the entirety of my life to be pleasing in sight. If it has a hint of sin, it, if it has any association with sin, if it comes anywhere close to sin in this world, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And I'll tell you, my friend, you'll protect yourself from opening the door. You'll protect yourself from seeing this happen, this, this thought of sin slipping in and trying to reign. Notice number two. Here's another observational truth from this simple verse in verse 12. Number two, if we are commanded to not allow it to reign, to not allow sin reign, we must have the ability then and the power to obey. That makes common sense. It's logical. I, I think of that word uh, that is translated as reckon um, you kind of look at that greek word and it kind of looks like the where we derive the word logic from so <laughs> this idea of reckoning challenges us to think now wait a minute if god commands us this is an imperative if god commands us to do something the fact is this we have the power and the ability to do it. now that's encouraging because the fact is this god would not command us to do something if we didn't have the power and the ability to accomplish it God would not command us to do something if we did not have the power and the ability to accomplish it. Literally, what would that be? 
For instance, let's do this. Let's say I brought in my, my uh, he just turned nine. I was about to say eight-year-old. My nine-year-old, okay? CJ, let's just say I brought him in. I said, CJ, I want you to jump and touch that projector. Okay? All right, let's go. When I say go, you jump and touch the projector. That's the goal, okay? You get to go home tonight once you touch the projector. And that's the goal. Once you do that, you'll be able to go home. Okay, and go. And he jumps and he gets his well, foot off the ground. Maybe that's generous. I don't know. <laughs> However high he jumps and, well, sorry, didn't mean to go. Now, some of you say, oh, wow, Pastor here, I cannot believe that. You're not going to let your son go home because he, you couldn't even do that. That's impossible. He can't do that. Well, how cruel would a God be who tells you and I to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, but you and I can't see that happen? I mean, that'd be a cruel God, wouldn't it? That would be the epitome of a defeated living. If he commands you and I to do something and we have absolutely no power or ability to see it accomplished in our lives, that would be discouraging. It would be defeated living, whatever your descriptions wants to be. So understanding this, it certainly requires you and I to be plugged into God and His Word. It requires, as we'll see here in a few moments, a few verses, it requires us to be yielded and obedient, and yet, nonetheless, it makes it possible for us to keep sin off the throne. So, granted, you and I, we would certainly say, because Paul says it Romans chapter 7, I think here, uh, if not a couple chapters later, he says, for in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. So we understand that within my body and myself, I certainly don't have the power and the ability to live free of sin's reign. But because of what Christ did on the cross of Calvary and all the grace and the power that God affords me, you and I can live free from the reign of sin. We can obey the command given to us by scriptures, which is a tremendous truth. You and I can now, because Paul would not write it. The Holy Spirit would not inspire him to put it down on paper if it were not possible for you and I to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. So it makes it possible, and frankly, that is great encouragement. It ought to give us hope. There is the idea here, we'll see it in verses 13 and following next week. There is the idea of surrendering to God surrendering to god so that we don't have to do what surrender to sin i want to surrender to god i don't want to surrender to sin i don't want to give in to that the word he uses and we'll see in next week i don't want to yield to sin i want to yield to god i want him to rule and reign the outcome is so much better notice this that that thought speaks more uh, in the following uh, he'll, he'll explain excuse me in the following verses but notice number three if you will Sin wants to exert its rule and reign through our lust, that is our desires. That's what verse 12 told us, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. That's how it wants to exert its rule. The strength of sin's rule is in fulfillment of lust and desire obedience to the natural man's desires and lust enthrones sin as the reigning monarch in our lives so the more that i give in to my basic lusts and desires that come from my sin nature my flesh the more i feed that and and i said this some time ago to our our teenagers here at fba in a in a chapel hey it's very simple whatever you feed is going to grow 
Okay, in my own house, in my own home, if I were to say uh, before my kids and before uh, breakfast one morning, I said, listen, hey, for the next two weeks, we're going to feed Carson, but not Carter. Sorry, Carter. So for the next two weeks, reality is, obviously, Carter would get very hungry, but Carson would continue to grow even as he is already. Because what you feed is going to grow. Carter may shrink, may not be able to get, get around, the muscles may go through atrophy and everything else, and we won't go into the great medical description, but reality is this, what you feed grows. It's no different for us as believers. What you feed is going to grow. You will either feed what the Bible calls the flesh or the old man, or you will feed the new man, which is in Christ. The one that is born after righteousness. So you and I decide which one we feed. And here, what Paul is saying, and you feed those old lusts and desires of the flesh, I want to be number one. I want to look out for me. I want to take it. I want this, and I want that. And, and boy, I want to feed my, both, my basic lust, sexual, whatever you want to do, power, money, material, possessions. And I, I just feed that, and boy, I, I feed that old man. Can I tell you, my friend, you are, in, you are strengthening and emboldening sin to reign in your life. It will. Even as a believer, a born-again, redeemed child of God, if we obey the lust thereof, Paul says, sin's going to rule and reign. doesn't have to, but it will. We'll erect it on the throne of our lives. You give in to and obey those desires and lusts, and we'll have full reign of your life. And that then brings us to the obvious fourth observational truth. It's simply this. A, a believer, excuse me there, that was desires. A believer must refuse and resist obedience to the lusts and desires of our flesh refuse resist don't obey don't do it refuse and resist having several children in our home it reminds me of something that i endured as a child too i i was only privileged to have one sibling an older brother he was about three and a half, four years older than I was. His name was Scott. If you've forgotten, my name is Stephen. And, <laughs> but the reality is this. You know what he did? He would often tell me to do things. Entice me to do things. And sometimes those were things that we ought not to have done, but I did them because why? My older brother said to. Any of you younger siblings ever go through that horrendous treatment by your older they tell you and you obey them but you chose to obey them and i did i chose to obey them. i can remember a couple things very vividly that we got busted for okay i remember one time we were <laughs> we had a nerf hoop in our in our room our bedroom and uh, on the back of the door and we got a little older maybe in high school junior high probably junior high high school and uh, i remember exactly my mom was leaving for an air and she said don't play ball in the house i don't know why that rule was ever invented <laughs> but anyway don't play ball in the house and I remember we played ball in the house. And there in our house, we had just one of those old square shades that was right in the middle of the, the room. Had light bulbs, you know, and the shade was underneath it. And I remember I went up for a perfect hook shot. And I put my hand right through that shade on that thing. Shattered that thing in a million pieces. That's pretty hard to hide when you're a kid, can I tell you? And all because he said, yeah, let's play. Go on, go on. Oh, and, and unfortunately, he said the, the, the horrendous words, mom will never know. He forgot to tell me this, but God always knows. 
and be sure your sin will find you out. And it did. You couldn't hide that. I remember we were standing in that room. She walked in. And we were, you know how you acting like nothing happened and you were telling her everything happened. Because <laughs> her first statement was, what What'd you do? What's wrong? <laughs> and you're kind of like, nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> Looking up at the shade. And boy, she picked up on it just like that. Hey, can I tell you, what we obey, that's what is going to rule. Who did I allow to make choices for me? I allowed my older brother, but the fact is, I chose to obey, to do what, excuse me, to do what he said. So for you and I, if we obey the lusts and the desires of our flesh, the fact is, then in turn, we have given into that. The challenge is for you and I to, in order to reckon to ourselves the victory, we as believers must fully and genuinely cooperate with God, with the Holy Spirit. We determine that by God's grace and strength, sin will not have sovereignty over us. It will not reign through obedience to the desires and the lusts. So what do we do? Well, every desire and want and like, we ought to say, okay, is this feeding the old man or is this feeding the new man? Is this new desire because I'm a new creature in Christ? Or wait a second, is it the old nature trying to take me back down a road that leads to sin ruling and reigning? So I try it all. I test it all. Is this desire natural? Is it natural to the old man or is it natural for the new man? Is it right and pleasing to God or is it something that is more pleasing to the old man, my flesh? And so we have to ask that question because I don't want to obey a desire and a lust that puts sin back on the throne. So each and every day we ask the question. This desire. Boy, somebody said something to me and I want to respond this way. Is that desire to respond that way? Is that what the old man would do? Or is that what the new man ought to do? What he should do. What he's been instructed to do according to the, God's word. And therein is the key for you and I. I like how one is rightly put it. In fact, Paul's going to talk about this alternative here. It's going to be living, living by the principle of righteousness. We'll see that in the end of this chapter, Romans chapter 6. But one has described it this way. You see it on your outline. It's literally living and doing as we ought rather than what we want. Living and doing what we ought to do or how we ought to live and do as opposed to what we want to do. Because that old flesh wants to do a lot of things that, it ought, that we ought not to do. The sin nature, we're still struggling with that, that aspect of us that, boy, we are still kind of fighting with. And yes, it's there. It's been nailed to the cross. But until glory comes, we've got to make sure it doesn't regain the throne. It's been deposed by Jesus Christ. Now I am here to live every day to make sure it does not gain back the throne. And so I'm not going to heed and obey the lusts and the desires. And I will try every thought, every inclination, every desire to make sure it is what would be in keeping with what the new man ought to look like. Pleasing God. What is holy and acceptable, perfect will of God, as Paul writes later. There's one last thing, and we're done. I like how Paul uses in verse 12, did you catch it? He used this term. He said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Mortal body. 
It's a subtle reminder, and don't miss it tonight as we close. It, it is a subtle reminder that any reign by sin in the life of a believer is short-lived. These are perishable bodies. They are temporary bodies. It, it, it's a needed and a comforting reminder that this struggle to keep sin off the throne, to keep it from reigning in our lives, is but a limited time struggle. It will not last forever. In fact, you see it there even on your outline. It is temporary in its nature. Uh, it's an arrangement. Again, the, the term mortal, as he describes our mortal body. Mortal means dying or subject to death. These bodies are mortal. Sin wants to rule and reign. And here's the good news. You and I will not struggle forever. These bodies will one day return to the earth and yet our souls are immortal and our souls will go on living with god where the struggle against sin will cease you and i will no longer have to work at making sure that sin doesn't reign in our mortal bodies i don't know we've studied heaven before in a series there on sunday morning i i don't know the full aspect of it all but i do know this i'm looking forward to the day when you and i don't have to try and test every desire we have where i don't have to worry about now wait a minute is that feeding the old man or is that more of the new man what is that feeding what is that encouraging the old man or the new man what what is it doing I am so much looking forward to the day where we don't have to worry about that. Where sin can no longer rule and reign in our lives and we don't have that struggle going on. Um, we'll be free from the tormenting daily fight to not obey the lusts and desires of sin in our sinful nature. So what's the challenge for you and I? Let's take away from it this week. May you and I know what we have in Cal Calvary, what Jesus Christ has accomplished. May we then reckon it to be so in our lives actively saying okay i'm going to make up my mind and heart to act upon what we know what i know and then to deal defeating blows to sin day after day time after time as we strive to do what we ought to do not necessarily what we want to do so the question for you and i this week who am i going to feed old man old nature or new nature the new man in jesus christ who's going to reign this week in our lives i trust because of what we know you and I will reckon our lives to be dead indeed unto sin.